Well, good morning, Renewal family. Welcome to our worship this morning, and welcome to any of you who are virtually visiting with us as well. Well, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark together, and as we've been going through our series, one of the things you may have noticed, and and one of the things that makes it a bit challenging at times for the preacher, is that the Gospel of Mark uh, describes the life of Jesus Christ in a series of snapshots or, or small stories that we call pericopes. And sometimes the thematic connection from one pericope to the next is obvious. Other times it's not as clear. And sometimes there's not meant to be a clear thematic connection between pericopes. So therein lies the challenge for the preacher. On one hand, Studying, if we were to study one pericope per week, this would turn into a very, very long sermon series. Uh, But as we seek to study several pericopes at once, the challenge of the preacher is knowing how to divide the gospel, how to break it down so that there's some connection, some thematic connection uh, between the pericopes we are studying. And again, that can be a challenging thing. Now, the reason I'm sharing this and bringing this up is because I think it points to something that we crave as human beings, and that is coherence. There's something within us that desires to see the connection between things, between ideas. Uh, Whether you're in a classroom, whether you're in a work setting, whether you're uh, even playing a board game. If there's a lot of information thrown at you, there's this desire within to try and connect it all. And so we ask questions like, okay, what what do I really need to know? What's the bottom line? What's the main idea? Boil it down for me. What are you really trying to say? Help me to see not just the individual trees, but help me to see the big picture. Help me to see the forest. And this is actually the type of uh, exchange or conversation that's happening in our text today. In particular, uh, one scribe, and and scribes were experts in the Jewish law or, or, or the Jewish scriptures, one scribe, after hearing Jesus engage with other religious leaders as they were seeking to discredit him, the scribe perceives Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' mastery over the scriptures and how he answers them. And so he comes to Jesus with this very honest and sincere question. He's not trying to trap him as the other religious leaders were doing. He really wants to know what Jesus thinks. And so he asks this question, which commandment is the most important of all? According to the scribes, there were 613 identifiable commands, 365 negatives or don'ts, 248 positives or do's. And so the rabbis, um, as they thought and discussed uh, about the commandments, there was debate amongst themselves. They were uh, trying to determine which commandments were heavy and which commandments were lighter. Which ones really mattered, were the the more important, and, and which were important but less so. They were seeking to, in other words, prioritize the commandments. But not only that, they were also seeking uh, to find a summarizing principle, right? A principle that ties all the commandments together, 
a bottom line, a main idea, to see the forest and not just the 613 trees. And so this is what the scribe was seeking. And we're going to study Jesus' response, and we will study his response under these three headings. The supremacy of love, the unity of love, and the possibility of love. The supremacy of love, the unity of love, and the possibility of love. And so, before we dive right in, let me invite us to bow one more time in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you this morning and we humble ourselves before your word your truth your word is like a hammer that breaks rock it's like a fire that burns and purifies and so lord we humble ourselves before you and before your word and we ask that you would speak your word and that you would do what you need to do in our hearts lord even under this idea of coherence. Lord, you are the one, and it is your your truth uh, by which we make sense of all things in life. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to understand your truth in a way that helps us to understand life and bring a coherence to our lives for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first we'll look at the supremacy of love. So, in response to the scribe's question, which commandment is the most important of all, Jesus answers beginning in verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is citing directly from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5, and this was known as the Shema. It was a confession of faith that every devout Jew recited during the morning and evening prayers over and against the polytheistic cultures that surrounded them. This was a declaration, the Shema was a declaration that the God of Israel was the true and only living God. And so in light of the truth of who God was and all that he had done for his people, The proper response was, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, we want to be careful in trying to uh, parse out too finely or, or get over technical about the distinctions between heart, soul, mind, strength, because these things are all interconnected. And there is some overlap between what each of these things is trying to to symbolize or or convey. So, to give you the bottom line of what this command is expressing, it is this. Because all that we are and all that we have is ultimately from God, All that we are and all that we have is from God. Therefore, we owe our all to God. We owe our all to God. He deserves supremacy in our lives. He is to be our first and greatest love, our highest joy, our greatest pleasure, our greatest pursuit. 
It means we don't just love him for what he gives. We love him for him, for who he is. Uh, There are times when a person will say that they're in love. But if you ask them, what do you love about your significant other? What do you love about your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance? What do you love about them? Some people might answer in this way. They make me laugh. I have fun whenever we're together because we have so much in common. They support me. They make me feel special. They make me feel like the most important person in the world. But if you read between the lines, it sounds more like more than loving the person for who they are, more than loving their significant other for who they are and delighting in their significant other, it sounds like when when a person talks this way, what they really love is not the other but themselves. They do this for me and they make me feel this way and, and me, me, me. And when the other person stops giving them what they want and and causing them to feel what they want to feel, such love will come to an end. And, And we would say that, biblically speaking, such disposable love was never truly love. Likewise, with the Lord, we are to love Him for Him. Not because of all the wonderful things he does for us, but simply because of who he is. He is worthy of our love. Even when Job lost everything, he lost all the gifts of life. His wife said, after all that he had been through, she said, you know what, just, why don't you just curse God and die? And he replies, naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's expressing the fact that God doesn't actually owe us. This is what Job is saying. God doesn't actually owe me anything. I'm the one who owes him everything. He is God. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of my love and my devotion for who he is. To love him supremely means he is the true north. The true north by which everything else in my life is to align. What I do with my time what I do with my talents, what I do with my treasure, my possessions, my money, how I approach my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my dating life, how I approach my friendships, how I approach my enemies, my thought life, all of my choices, all of my decisions, my decision-making process are all meant to be in alignment aligned to his desires, his priorities, and everything flows out of a motivation to make much of him. Now, you may have noticed 
that I have yet to address the first pericope from our scripture reading, but I want to turn to that now and connect what Jesus teaches there to what Jesus is teaching here in this pericope. As we've seen in previous weeks, immediately after uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he has been facing opposition from the get-go, from the religious leaders. They were threatened by his popularity and and all the, the following and attention that he was gaining. So they were threatened. They were jealous. Now, amongst the religious leaders, there were different factions who held very different views Uh, including theological views, but they were united. They were united in their animosity and opposition towards Jesus. Now, one of those factions was called the Sadducees, and one of their main beliefs, one of their distinguishing beliefs, was the fact that they actually rejected the idea of a resurrection. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in a world to come or an afterlife. Religion for them was more about morality in this life and attaining earthly rewards, not heavenly ones. So, they came to Jesus and uh, they came to basically discredit him. They wanted to expose the idea of a resurrection as a silly idea, right? They wanted to refute that, and they do it by posing this hypothetical question or highly improbable situation to Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 6, we read about what is called the Leveret Law, um, and it's simply this. When a man married a, uh, a woman... And if he, if, he, if he died before having children, it was the responsibility of his brother to marry the widow and then to have children on his behalf with her. So, the Sadducees posed this hypothetical situation. If there was a woman who married a man who had six brothers, right? So, uh, seven sons in total. She marries this man who had six brothers and uh, he dies. So then the first brother available marries this widow, but then he dies. So the second brother available marries the widow, and then he dies, and then the third brother, and so on, all the way to the seventh brother. Whose wife then, in a situation like that, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? In the life or world to come, who's she going to be married to if she married seven brothers? Which one is her husband? If I were in Jesus' shoes, I may have pushed back on this hypothetical situation asking, don't you think by brother number four, um, they would have seen a pattern, right? (laughs) Brother number four might have disappeared, right? After seeing one, two, three, uh, anyone see brother number four? Probably would have bolted after seeing the pattern that every one of them kept dying. (laughs) But nonetheless... The hypothetical scenario was meant to be intentionally absurd because the Sadducees were trying to show that the idea of the resurrection was absurd and they did it using the law, right? Ironically, even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, they actually took Old Testament law very seriously uh, and they didn't believe the Old Testament law pointed to any type of resurrection. And so they used the law basically saying, if the resurrection is real, 
This leveret law makes no sense because this woman in the life to come would have seven husbands then. And so this is how Jesus responds. He uses scripture. He quotes from Exodus in the account of Moses and the burning bush where God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was their God. Meaning, they're still alive. The resurrection is real. And furthermore, resurrection life is not simply a continuation of life here, right? As, the, as if there's no difference between life here and the life to come, that it's just a, a simple continuation. No, Jesus refutes that. He says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What's he saying? Marriage is momentary. This is why our marriage vows say, till death do us part. These are not eternally binding vows. Part of the reason that we don't need marriage in heaven is because part of the reason for marriage was to multiply, as God commanded, be fruitful and fill the earth. Well, there's no more need to have children. That will cease in heaven. And this is what Jesus means by we will be like the angels. He doesn't mean we're going to sprout wings. He's saying we will live like the angels eternally, but we are not eternally bound in marriage. We will, in heaven, we will share fellowship. Uh, in the kingdom to come, we will share fellowship uh, with our spouse, but in the same way we share fellowship with all who believe in Christ. Right? My, my wife would always or often ask, do you think we'll still be friends? Like, of course we, we will still be friends. We won't be married, but we'll share fellowship. But just as we do with all who are in Christ. And at the thought of this, perhaps some of you are like, no. I hope you're not like, yes. Um, but th that's the reality. That's the truth. But more than just the fact that there's no longer a need to procreate, as the Apostle Paul clearly states in Ephesians 5, marriage is meant to serve as an earthly illustration of God's marriage to His people. It's a sign pointing to a greater reality, the reality of our marriage to Jesus. And so when faith becomes sight, in that day, we no longer need the illustration. We no longer need the sign because we're experiencing the reality of what the sign was pointing to, our marriage to Jesus. No one pulls up to Disney World and then drives, turns around and drives back down the highway to stop at the sign that says Disney World 10 miles away. No one stops and hangs out at that sign if you've experienced the reality of what the sign is pointing to. That would be absurd. Some of us, yeah, or some things in this life we will no longer experience in the life to come, including marriage. Marriage will no longer be. But it's not going to be, we're not going to be worse off for it. We're not all going to be moping around 
What we experience in the life to come is going to be far better than what we know now. So, to connect this to the earlier point, as important as marriage is, as precious, as primary in amongst human relationships, as precious, as primary, as pleasurable as marriage can be, it's momentary and it's secondary to our permanent marriage to Jesus and the infinite preciousness, the infinite pleasure that are found in Him. When I was young, uh, when I was a young youth group student, uh, there was a Christian artist named Keith Green that was very popular. Um, he had this style I, I kind of think of. He was kind of like a Christian version of, of Billy Joel. And sadly, some of you won't even know who he is either. But nonetheless, um, this man um, was known for his passion, known for his intensity. Um, and one of his albums, I mean, this man was so intense, his album was called No Compromise. And so this is uh, what he writes in one of his songs called Pledge My Head to Heaven. He writes this of his wife. He says, as I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Told you he was intense. I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Now, especially in our Hollywood-influenced culture, it's not a very flattering thing to say. Honey, you're a solid second place. But the irony is, by keeping Christ in first place, that's exactly what enables you to be the best possible spouse you can be. It's exactly what frees you up to truly love them as you should. Giving the Lord supremacy in our lives, to love Him supremely, doesn't make you into this antisocial monk. Right? I don't care about other people. I don't need other people. It's just me and Jesus. Instead, it actually has the opposite effect. You become more other-centered, not a secluded monk, but a selfless, sacrificial missionary, which is our second point, the unity of love. The scribe asked Jesus, which commandment singular, which commandment was the most important of all? And Jesus responds by reciting the Shema. But immediately after verse 31, he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Straight from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe only asked for one. Jesus gave two. And it's not because he couldn't decide between the two, right? If someone asks me, um, what do you like better, steak or sushi? Uh, yes. It, it's hard for me to decide between the two, but that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on. Rather, Jesus is expressing the fact that there is an unbreakable unity 
an unbreakable unity that exists between loving God and loving people. The two are inseparable. Now, to be clear, God's love, love for God must always be primary. He is our supreme love. It must be primary, as we said, but it's not Loving Him is not to the exclusion of others. Rather, if you love God as you should, supremely, then you will and you must love others and move towards others. These things, these two things are inseparable. We see this reflected in the Ten Commandments, right? Which is a, a another type of summary of, of, of God's law. The Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God. And then 5 through 10 are all about loving neighbor. And again, loving God and loving neighbor are utterly inseparable. So that the, the famous reformer Martin Luther, he, he expressed, if you break the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. If you break the first, you will break the rest. In other words, a lack of a love, lack of love for our neighbors is a result of not loving God and keeping them in first place. There is a unity. The apostles continue to emphasize this unity in their writings. 1 John uh, 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's genuine love for God, there will be genuine love for neighbor. And whereas the religious leaders tried to narrow the scope of who our neighbors are, they wanted to narrow, narrow it to fellow Jews, only people who are just like them. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus widens the scope of neighbor to include anyone in need, even those regarded as your enemies. There are many metrics that Christians may try and use to determine our spiritual health or our spiritual maturity, our maturity in the faith. There's a lot of different metrics we can try to look at. Some people will look to their theological knowledge or their biblical knowledge. Some people will look at their commitment their commitment to serve. Uh, I'm not one of those flaky people. Once I commit to serve, I mean, I might as well sign it in blood because I'm not going anywhere. Some people look at the amount that they sacrifice, time, money. And, and again, these are all good things. But the main gauge, the main gauge, if there was a little, a little window or a hatch that you could peek into your heart, to see what's really going on. Kind of like the oven window that you, to see, you turn on the oven light and you see through that window what's really going on inside. If you want a little peek into your heart that tells you the state of your heart, what really makes your heart burn, then the most accurate indicator is you look at how you are treating others. 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it list some of the things that I just described in terms of metrics people can use? If I speak in the tongues of angels, if I, can, uh, if I know all kinds of mysteries, if I sacrifice all that I have and give my body to be burned in the flames, but have not love, 
I am nothing. So question, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Self-love, self-love is assumed, right? We don't need to be taught that. We're constantly thinking about what makes us happy, what makes me comfortable, what I want, what's good for me. Even people with low self-esteem, that's actually a form of self-obsession. But Jesus says, regard others with the same regard that you have for yourself. Think of their happiness, their comfort, what's good for them. Even do this even for your enemies. So again, looking at the window into your heart, that little hatch, how are you treating those around you right now? Your spouse, your children, your roommate, your friends, those who aren't your friends, those you disagree with, who hold opposing views, who annoy you, who make you very uncomfortable, who you have nothing in common with. Because of the inseparable unity of love that exists, the love of God and the love of others, the state of your posture towards others will clearly tell you the state of your heart before God. I know during the season of uh, COVID, I've had to do a lot of apologizing to my sons, to my boys. I've had to ask for their forgiveness many times for when I was impatient, when I was not compassionate, when I was not understanding, where I spoke to them out of unlo- uh, in unloving ways and out of sinful anger. And by the way, as some of you know, I do have a fourth child. I have a two-year-old daughter, but I have the opposite problem with her. I let her get away with too much. I'm working on that as well. But in apologizing much to my boys and confessing my wrong to my boys, I've also had to do a lot of confessing before God. Because again, Not loving them well is a result of the fact that I have not loved Christ well because the two are related and it works the other way. Getting right with the Lord is precisely what will help me get right with my boys. That's how it works. Such is the unity of love. Finally, the possibility of love. In response to Jesus' answer, the scribe responds this way in verses 32 to 33. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of our heart and with all of our understanding and with all of our strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus replies, verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus reply this way? What does he mean by you are not far from the kingdom of God? Well, the scribe is in agreement with Jesus 
that all the commands of the law could be summarized as essentially being about loving God and loving neighbor. And these commands were of first importance, even over and against burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's a remarkable thing for a scribe to admit because his very job was about clarifying and upholding the importance of sacrificial laws. The scribe, however, understood. It wasn't enough to just go through the motions of offering sacrifices and burnt offerings with, without a heart that was truly devoted to God. God had made this clear through the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Of first importance to God was the relationship, and the rituals were meant to be an expression of, of love to God and for God, to the God who had graciously loved them first. However, so much of the religious practice at that time had become distorted, had become corrupted, the Pharisees were the prime example of outward conformity to religious rules and regulations. They were better at it than anyone. But what they really loved was not God, but the applause of man. If you looked into the window of their heart, that's what you would see there. What caused them to burn, what kept them going, their fuel was the love of applause and popularity and fame. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs who looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside were full of corruption and death. And because they were so good at this outward conformity to religious rules and regulations, they actually believed themselves to be genuinely righteous, even though in the eyes of God, their righteousness had fallen far short of His standard of what righteousness really means, the kind of righteousness God desires. They were puffed up with pride as they compared themselves to others who were not as good at follow, following their game, playing their game, the game that they set up of their religious rules and regulations, which was a cheapened, cheapened form of true righteousness. But this scribe knew better. And so Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. You are not far. In other words, you're close. But... You're not in yet. You're not in yet. There's a saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I guess in the game of horseshoes, whoever's closer, it's good enough. Hand grenade, as long as it's kind of close and it explodes, that's good enough. But close only counts in those arenas. What it's trying to say is close is not good enough. If, if you're late to catch a plane and, and there you're running through the terminal and the doors close and you don't get on the flight, you don't say to yourself, well, we were close and you go home happy. At least I was close. No, you don't want to be close to the plane. You want to be in the plane. Likewise, close to the kingdom close to the kingdom, I guess it's better than far, but still, 
close to the kingdom is not good enough. You got to get in. What did this man need? What more did he need to see? Well, what he needed to see was in fact right in front of his face. He needed to recognize the one who was standing right in front of him was in fact the very Son of God who took on flesh and came to earth because our rule-keeping, our righteousness was never going to be good enough. We constantly failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Frankly, most days the Lord barely gets 10% of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a result, we also fail miserably in loving our neighbors as ourselves. And because we failed to love God as He deserves to be loved, that place of supremacy, He has every right to punish us. But instead... Jesus Christ, the only one who ever lived and walked this earth. He's the only one who ever perfectly loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. He took the punishment we deserved. And when we failed to give our all to him, even though we failed to give our all to him, Jesus gave his all to us, loving us with all of his heart. We could even say all of his soul for on this on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, all of his mind, all of his strength, loving his enemies even more than his own life, for he laid it down. It is this truth that he first loved us like this, that compels us to want to love him in return with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. In closing, this teaching, this idea of, of the call upon our lives to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourself, this is actually simple, meaning it's not hard to understand. It's not a complicated thing to try to wrap your mind around. It's simple, but simple does not mean easy. Think about golf. I don't know if you've ever tried golf, but the concept is very simple. You have a club and a little ball. Just hit the ball. Hit it straight and try to get it in that hole in as few shots as possible, with as few swings as possible. Just get the ball in the hole. Simple. But if you've ever tried it, you know how near impossible it feels. Loving God, loving others is simple to understand, but not only is it hard in our own strength, it's actually impossible in our own strength. But if you've given your heart to Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in Him, His Spirit is in you. And you will certainly not be perfect in this life, but by the power of God, you can make very real progress in loving God and in loving others. And this Sunday, I pray that the Lord is moving us closer, powerfully, in that direction more and more. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are humbled by our failure to treat you as you deserve and as a result to treat others as we should. But we're also humbled as we consider the fact that even though that's true of us, you still chose to give us your all, to love us with all of your heart, mind, strength. We thank you for such grace, and it is that very grace that transforms our hearts, that compels us outward, and it is that very same promise and commitment of grace that you have made that guarantees that we can and we will grow in this more and more until that final day when we do see you face to face, and we will 100% love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and be loving one another as we love ourselves. Till that final day, Lord, help us to grow in this more and more. And the times we're living in, in particular, this is so very needed that you send your people forth into this world to be a people of radical love. Empower us to do so in the power of Christ his spirit we ask and pray in Jesus name amen let's close in this final song